0: Hello and
1: welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theatre Company podcast series.
0: Hi, this is Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theatre Company and I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theatre Company podcast series on all things theatrical. We have a very special guest today, the playwright Taddy Hennessy, who is uh, known to us uh, and and, uh, in many other places as well as the author of our first play in the uh, upcoming slightly abridged season, A Hundred Words for Snow. Taddy, welcome and thank you for joining us.
1: Not at all. Thank you. Delighted.
0: Excellent. And you—you uh, you just told me before we started the podcast that you were in Somerset. Is that what you said?
1: Yeah, that's right. I've spent a lot of lockdown here. My parents are here, um, so I've, I feel very lucky that I've been able to get out
0: of London uh, over the last few months. Where is Somerset? Is that uh, west uh, western part of the?
1: Yeah, south southwest. So sort of just before you get—if you hit Cornwall, you've gone too far.
0: Mm, very good. Um, to Thomas Hardy country is that is that right sort of? A... Oh, I
1: think yeah, I think you're right. I think that's I I I, I have to brush up on my Hardy. You probably know better than I do.
0: <laughs> One of our more fanciful events here, where a few years ago we did a two-part five-hour musical adaptation of Jude the Obscure. Oh wow! <laughs> worked worked a lot better than it sounds like it might. Uh, I mean, it you know. sounds brilliant. <laughs> Uh, Well, uh, anyway, um, but uh, thank you uh, again uh, for joining us. Now, um, I wanted to start off before we talk about you and uh, about the theater um, that you've been creating, I'd love to know a little bit about uh, what's happening over there uh, with regard to the pandemic. It's now about six months into its uh, bite, and I'm just curious to know how you're feeling about it and what's happening in the theater world in England you've sort of caught us at a
1: particularly strange moment it has been really it has been really bleak for the industry it's always sort of hard talking about this because you sort of know that there's this vast landscape of of difficulty and suffering that goes along with this and you're only talking about your little back garden of it but it has been really hard for our industry i think it's kind of laid bare a lot of the problems and the inequalities and discrepancies that were already present um, which may be a silver lining going forward that it's sort of made it impossible to ignore some of the things that have already been really broken. Um, it's looking like our culture secretary um, has broken long months of silence uh, and is talking about potentially theatres being open again in, for Christmas but we're not really sure what that means and our cases are rising again so I, I, take, everything that, I take everything that our current governments say with an enormous pinch of salt. Um, yeah. And we'll sort of we'll we'll see what happens um the response from our government has not been uh has not, not been uh glorious shall i put it that way um i think that probably like similarly to in the states that we you know we rely on freelancers freelancers are the backbone of this industry and historically and especially at the moment they're kind of we are kind of bearing the the, the main burden of the of the economic difficulty and the The risk and the uncertainty Um, and the government's response hasn't really helped with that um so yeah it's sort of it's shone a light i think on on inequalities and structural problems that were already there um and i think looking forward to like when it all ends we just sort of hope that that buildings and organizations and and companies are still willing to take risks on work rather than kind of falling back on on programming the same faces and the same names because that's going to be how the industry will recover the best but it's all kind of up in the air and it feels like it's changing every
0: day. (laughs) Well, maybe there'll be uh, some of both, you know, maybe the, the the, uh, old standard bearers will, uh, will, you know, draw in the audiences to get the budgets back to an even keel. And then that will open the field for, for younger writers. I was talking with your director, uh, Lucy, last week uh, uh, about the, um, the fact that the, the, West End Theater that you uh, perform the show at, and it's infinite, wisdom oh, oh. has decided to use the pandemic as an excuse to get rid of its smaller space. Yeah. Uh, right, they're, they're turning the, the larger space um, at the Trafalgar Studios into an even larger space, which means that fewer uh, innovative or, or young or uh, borderline um, marketable um, events can, can perform on the West End. Uh, which of course is how it's always been on Broadway, but we do have a, an off-Broadway that's fairly robust as as mm-hmm. well. So, um, so um, I'm curious to know uh, that, I mean, that, you bring up a very interesting point. Are there conversations happening about what that structural change might look like? Uh, I don't mean every detail, but are there any sort of broad ideas that are being thrown about?
1: One thing that's come out of it that I think has been a really good force for change has been this um, the Freelancers Alliance where um, uh, mostly a lot of theatres across the country have um, sort of taken on board as advisors, freelance artists to take them along as part of the conversations with government bodies and with the Arts Council about the pandemic response and just move to kind of greater transparency about how decisions are made within buildings. I think that when you are an artist you know you feel like well I'm the one making this work and I feel very shut out from some of those sort of bigger conversations so right. I think that's a really a really good move to kind of make those barriers a little bit more permeable
0: interesting that's interesting does that does that extend into the world of the playwrights as well or i think so yeah i believe it
1: was cross disciplinary cross disciplinary that's hard to say
0: <laughs> <Sure>. um yeah <laughs> Well, um, fascinating. Uh, you're, um, you're a uh, relatively uh, new uh, playwright, uh, at least uh, unless you have a really good makeup artist there on your side. Yeah. You look ridiculously young to me uh, uh, and uh, so to be so successful. How did you get started, Teddy? How does, how does one... Um, you know, there are novels abound and movies and television shows, but but plays, even in England, are, <clears throat> are far down the list of things that people encounter in their hmm. lives regularly. How did you encounter theatre and how did that transform you into uh, the idea of writing for the stage? I
1: think it was um, relatively... Relatively early on, I was very, very lucky that um, I went to school in London, and um, we had someone from the Gate Theatre, which is a really brilliant new writing theatre in Notting Hill, um, came to run a workshop at my school. And I, I knew I wanted to be a writer ever since I knew that the books that I read had somebody who wrote them. Like I think since I realized that, that they didn't just materialize out of nothing, that that was a job that you could do. I think I'd known that was what I wanted to do. Um, but I'd not, like you say, yeah, I, it, it was sort of more thinking about novels, I think before that point. Yeah. Um, But I sort of thought, well, this sounds exciting. And The Gate at that time did a a free young writer's programme. You could go along once a week and sit in the basement um, drinking really bad cups of tea and sort of playing at being a writer. Mm -hmm. And they were brilliant. They took us really seriously. They took us to see plays. We got to see things on their stage for free. Um, We wrote a play and then they brought in professional actors to do a, a stage reading of what we would written. And it just felt like absolute magic, like that there could be this whole building and this infrastructure built up around these stories and that it felt communal. And I think that that's still what I love that, it, you know, theatre is made of people and it's not really just about you, the, the writer, it's about you as part of or one part of this big machinery. Um, and that's still what I find really thrilling. And I think I got the bug for it there. I kind of never, never really looked back. Um, from there, I went. I applied and I did the um, the Royal Court Young Writers Program. Um, wrote a play there. Uh, sort of knew that yeah, I want to be in theatre. I didn't really know what capacity. It still sort of felt like really audacious to think that you could be a playwright. So no. I think it took a while to feel legitimate in that. Um, but from then, I knew I wanted to work in theatre. I think yeah.
0: The court is the is the mecca for uh, for new writing, or at least it was um, for most of the last half of the twentieth century. Uh, and then there are new new places or newer places, like the gate, and uh, I guess the Arcola is doing some of that and yeah, the National, yeah has um, has as many new plays on as as they do uh, um, standards It seems like um, when when I hear other playwrights talk, I often hear about the a realization at some point that dialogue was um, was something they could do well. I think that 's mm. probably true of screenwriters as well. Um, but um, but there's more to it than that, isn't there? I mean, to, a play has to have something more than just two people talking. Um, can you talk about that? Like, what else is yeah. it? What are the other... i
1: like every dramaturg I've ever worked with. Yeah, I would very happily just write long, boring scenes of interesting people having nice conversations, and I would love writing them, and everyone would walk out in boredom. Yeah, there's so much more. Um, I think it's sort of, for me, it's the realisation that... that, that, that what's so much more important than what's being said is what's not being said. And such a huge part of the work that you're doing is hiding things and, and sort of doing kind of reverse, reverse psychological archeology, span I guess, of sort of how can, I, how can I bury this stuff as much as possible while still leaving just enough glimmers that the audience can get the thrill of excavating it. Mm-hmm. I think that's really joyful. Um, it's also just really geeky stuff like, about sort of structure that um, it's taking a story apart and figuring out why why it works the way that it does and why it's more satisfying for this thing to happen here than to happen here it's why things are put together in the way that they are um so that you can put them together again better it's sort of like yes it's sort of painting frescoes on the walls but it's also like doing the plumbing (laughs) like it's sort of both of those things i think you have to really love both both parts of it that's all really detailed sort of fine mechanical work as well as the kind of painting the vistas because otherwise they'll just fall down (laughs)
0: right I'm gonna I'm going tie together I hope two uh, two ideas that, that you've talked about now and that is the, the Aristotelian idea of uh, the structure of a play but also the question of whether new structures need to be um, um, allowed uh, or, or encouraged um, and i've I've heard that said you know uh, in the last uh, year or so that um, there's generally a thought that that there, that that we think there's one way of writing a play, the Aristotelian model, mm. because that's the only way we've ever written plays, mm. and because of the people who have been the ones who largely wrote mm. plays. Do you buy into that, or do you think that structure holds um, exclusively and uh, regardless of who's writing the play?
1: That's a really good question. I think that clearly that structure kind of lasts because it works and because it says something to us about the what our brains like and what we find satisfying, but I don't think necessarily that something needs to be satisfying for it to be successful or artistically interesting. Um, I also think that uh, what, you know, what my question always is sort of, well, why not? If you can sort of play with form and experiment and you feel like you can justify it in relation to the story that you're telling, I think that those kind of experiments, even if they're failures can be exciting and can tell us more about what's possible to achieve on stage. I think that um you kind of have to know what you're doing. <laughs> I think that there's it's easy to kind of look at something really formally experimental and to think oh well it's just it's it's improvisation but I think to be a really it's like that old cliche that to be really great at playing and improvised jazz you need to be really really good on your scales you need to know how to play your instrument. I think that there's just as much technical rigor and skill in those free form experiments with formats that is in the Aristotelian structure like as you say um and I think that there's like fruit to be found in both of them and I, I yeah I, I would always say that experiment and push and, and try new things even as I think I'm probably quite quite boring in my structure <laughs> my structures I think I'm not a particularly formally inventive writer
0: <laughs> I do hide I, that structure uh, um, my wife, who's a painter, says that, you know, Jackson Pollock had to learn to paint an apple before he could do what he did. And Yeah, or, or if
1: you look at um, uh, the, the museum in Amsterdam that has all of Van Gogh's paintings, that they sort of go, it's really beautiful. It's all arranged chronologically. And the first few paintings just, you know, they're very kind of pragmatist, realist paintings. And you sort of see how the seeds of his later experimental work is, is in that, is in those more sort of conventional, if I want a better word, um styles
0: yeah. um he became yeah, a craftsman first and, and then he became an artist uh, yeah I
1: think So, and i think as well like having an understand i would say this, this is something that i needed to hear probably earlier as a writer and have sort of come to you quite late that having a real rigorous understanding of structure isn't going to stop you being a genius <laughs> like you can still do all that playfulness
0: um, a really good point
1: yeah
0: yeah i've not heard that point made quite so clearly that's that's a really good point <laughs> Uh, Teddy, are you able to work uh, during the pandemic? Uh, uh, Is it creating something, a mindset that's hard to um, achieve the things you want to achieve? Or is it better now?
1: I think for a long time it was. I think at the start that you need that writing, creating is an act of faith in the future, even at the best of times, like it's sitting by yourself at a kitchen table, hoping that someday, one day, somebody else will care about the things that you care about. It's always an act of faith and it always involves kind of a prognosis of a future that you can understand. And I think that particularly at the beginning, it just didn't feel like we had access to that concept of a future. And that was really difficult. Mm-hmm. I was really, really lucky that I had the opportunity to um, to teach over the, the beginning of the pandemic. I was teaching playwriting courses at a drama school. And I think that was um, financially, I felt very fortunate to have that um, lifeline. But artistically as well, I think it, um, it kept me engaged in a different way with my craft and to sort of look at it with fresh eyes and through the eyes of young acting students who maybe hadn't thought of themselves as writers before to sort of understand what does it mean to tell a story and where do we begin from and kind of to be going back to the beginning with them myself in that time felt really really vital Um, and then I'm very fortunate as well to be working on a commission at the moment and um, nothing makes you more able to work than an approaching deadline (laughs) Sure. I think that's been really helpful. Speaking
0: of structure, um, uh, David Edgar, who's a friend of ours uh, here at yeah. Burning has um, has taught uh, significantly too, playwriting classes uh, uh, at the University of Birmingham, and he says much the same thing that um, mm. going through that and being challenged by the students. Absolutely, so, yeah. I think Sarah Kane famously was one of his students there for a while, and oh, wow. <laughs> I suspect she would have challenged whomever was in that position <laughs> anyway. oh,
1: no, That's what you'd want, isn't it? That's what you'd want to hear about Sarah Kane as a student. You'd want her to be a bit challenging and difficult. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, a bit uh, <laughs> from what I hear. But anyway, um, so uh, so then, uh, um, you know, we're talking about structure. We're talking about dialogue. Um and then uh, you have this uh, terrific one-person show that mm. that emerges. Where where did the Snow come from? Uh, did 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 you, did you know know this person at some point in your life? Was was it you? Uh, did you just imagine it? How did that happen?
1: It's it's a work of pure imagination. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. People assume with single person drama that there's sort of an autobiographical grain in it somewhere. Um, no, I wanted to write, I'd been wanting for a long time to write something about climate change, um, but it felt like it, it sort of felt like it's just such a huge subject. You kind of can't get purchase on it. It sort of seems to engulf you. Um, and at the same time, I, I wanted and had a sort of a, a big part of my. Um, you know, drive to to place female stories on stage that we haven't seen before and particularly teenage female stories and put a teenage female coming of age story that takes her just as seriously as the sort of conventional male buildings roman does. Um, and I sort of had those sort of separately in my head and kind of didn't hadn't sort of pinned down either one of them. And then I read an article about um, how climate change scientists have been going through grief counselling because of just the sense of loss of what we're losing um, uh, in the environment. And I just couldn't get that article out of my head. And there was something in that chiming of, of adolescence and grief and of climate change and environmental loss that those things all seem to chime really well in my head. There's something about the landscape of, um, the Arctic that it's so sort of desolate and frozen, but also with these pockets of life that seem to, I don't know, sit with the landscape of adolescence and also of grief. Um, with those things sort of swirling, (laughs) I kind of focused on the lightning rod of Rory to be kind of the, our eyes through the story. And, um, from there, I just did a lot, a lot of very geeky reading about Arctic exploration and about, about climate change and, um, and yeah I just spent a year kind of immersing myself in those narratives and um, then wrote the play quite quickly quite quickly after that mm-hmm. um,
0: yeah what 's the, uh, the journey then that the play takes once you 've typed the end or whatever <laughs> one types nowadays uh, uh, what do you do with it then do you uh, do you have an agent that you contact Do you put it in yeah I do
1: have an agent I think I actually sent it to Lucy first lucy was was at the same drama school as me she was um, she did the same course as me a year later, and we sort of we'd had a few pints and put the world to rights and talked about the sort of work we wanted to make and got on very well. And I was sort of thinking, oh, I want to send her a play. So I remember sending it to Lucy, going, well, "I've written this thing. I don't know whether there is any good. What do, you, what do you think about it?" Um, and she wrote back very quickly, saying that she loved it, that I made that it made her cry. Um, which is nice.
0: Me nice. too. By the
1: way. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's just. What's, I'm a. I'm a writer because I just. I just want to make people miserable. So I'm. <laughs> no, um, and yeah, I sent it to my agent, who's brilliant, and um, we we did a reading of it at a brilliant new writing theatre, um, the Old Red Lion uh, in Islington, and we did a reading of it there. I think it was about three hours long. <laughs> um, so I went away and cut it loads. Uh, it won a competition, um, so it was performed at the at the Arcola actually as part of that competition, but with a different production team. And then there's a really brilliant festival um, in London called the Vault Festival, yeah. which is kind of like a mini Edinburgh. It takes place in the tunnels, the disused tunnels underneath Waterloo, and it's just like eight weeks of of new writing magic and cabaret and comedy and theatre. And it's just a really exciting place to get your work seen. It's relatively like economically low risk for artists. It's sort of become like a um, a really important point on the theatrical calendar, if I can say something like that.
0: You're right, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. yeah. How, do you, how do you get the press there? Uh, it's a, an unheard of writer, an unheard of uh, material, you know, piece of material. Um, and it's, uh, you know, underground. <laughs> in a yeah. You I think, the, the, I think
1: the first few years was a struggle, but I think that the, the they have a really great selection process. I think that it's proven itself to be a real kind of crucible of, of new work. So I think Kind of like with the Edinburgh Festival, but it but it does attract critics because of what it is. Yeah. Um. We were also, I think, fortunate that, that, because of the prize that it had won, that we had a little bit of a little bit of shine on it, uh, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lynn Gardner, who is just a wonderful theatre critic, he was a real champion of of new writing, and a real kind of has a real nuanced eye for approaching um, Fringe work. Came and saw it and wrote a lovely review of it. Um, and I think also we're just lucky that you know it 's a one just speaking really practically like regardless of its merits it 's a one woman show about some timely things, so I think that 's quite attractive to
0: yeah, to yeah.
1: theaters because it 's cheap, and I think that is helpful
0: <laughs> it is it is about uh, climate change, but that doesn't seem overbearing in the story at all to me yeah. i mean it, it really is submerged uh, uh, yeah. in this larger kind of uh, almost Jack London, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, or uh, Robert Louis Stevenson or something like that, you know, this kind of swashbuckling uh, off yeah. we go, uh, you know, to have great adventures. And um, is, was that intentional on your part? Did you set up yeah. to, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I wanted it to be fun. Um, I think partly just as a kind of hack Thing, that you can't make someone cry unless you've made them laugh. So I knew needed to be funny, and I think no one is funnier than teenage girls. I, I I will fight anyone who says otherwise. Um, so I had to be funny. Uh, and then for the adventure side of it, I, my model for it was um, well, through the story, Rory on her adventure to the Arctic. She's reading Fridtjof Nansen's book Farthest North, and I read a load loads of these accounts of explorations by explorers. And so I thought, well, I want to write her version of that so that's sort of part of the reason for it being first person as well I wanted it to be a riff on those explorers um narratives of their own adventures for it to be like Robert Peary or um Kerry uh, Garrett's account of Scott's expedition that I wanted to sort of sit alongside those sort of boys own adventure type yeah. stories
0: yeah.
1: um but with a really different hero at the center of them
0: I've uh, I, I find that to be uh, fascinating. Um, do you um, do you think uh, when you think about a one person was this the first one person show you had written or or uh, had? Yeah, you... um,
1: yes, I think it, yeah, I think it was. Yeah.
0: I know that uh, my, one of my favorite writers, Connor McPherson, started off oh, doing yeah. nothing <laughs> but that, and and people started asking at some point, "Can you do anything yeah. else?" and He's such
1: a master at a monologue, though. He's he's so brilliant.
0: Yeah, yeah, he is. Uh, when you but but the question always looms when you're when you're uh, when you're producing or directing a, a one-person show, and since I have you here, uh, <laughs> I'll ask you. Um, you know, does the question of who who the person's talking to enter your mind uh, at mm. any point, uh, uh, and and is that in any way relevant to the staging or the produ- producing of the piece uh, in, in yes. as as you're concern.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think it's one of the pitfalls of writing monologues, it's really easy to fall into, is that like we were talking about subtext earlier, but I think because you have this like really lovely access to a character's mind, I think that the, the temptation can be just to give us unfettered access to a character's mind and you lose that subtext you lose that intention um so yes i drew, <laughs> i draw a little stick figure as part of my planning and i give the stick figure a, a name um and i think who d- it's sort of less about who is that person in reality and it's more who does the character think that person is um and it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody specific. I don't think for this it was. It was just, okay, well, she thinks that we're slightly older than she is. She thinks that um, we look down on her a little bit. We think that she's very young. She wants to impress her. She wants us to think that she's older than she is and that she's tough. She doesn't want us to think that she's um, hurt by her grief. She wants to put up this front. And the moment that you know who she's talking to, it's a lot easier to write what she's saying because you know, okay, she's not going to be really open with us from the beginning about her grief. She's going to want to hide it from us. And that's so much more interesting as an audience member and as a writer, I think. Yeah. Um, because it means that you can go on a journey with that character and then really to think of it like just a very one-sided duologue when you're writing it so that you still can do all the usual work that you would do as a writer of oh, what are the what's the intention and what do they want from me and what tactics are they using to get that from me. Mm-hmm. So it's I think that's what differentiates a monologue from a store, from a store, even piece of prose. Yeah. It's
0: not yeah.
1: prose, it's still dialogue.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, very interesting. Um so um so once the play becomes successful um you things change a bit I guess you start getting more offers or uh, you get you got uh, at least one commission that, that you've mentioned before um What do you want to do, uh, Teddy? Uh, What what do you want to do as a writer? Um, You know, some some writers that we think of in the canon, you know, David Mamet or a Tom Stoppard or somebody like that, they have this seems like a clear path, right? Mm -hmm. They're going to do this thing. Um, And then there are other writers. um, I'm thinking maybe of somebody like Simon Stevens, uh, speaking of the royal court. Um, who seem to do wildly different things you know um, and uh, go down different paths do you have a thought on what you what you want to do um, not mm. just stylistically but uh, you know in terms of your impact in the world
1: I mean sort of everything I think i'm a bit of a, of a glutton I sort of want to do it all I want to write a musical <laughs> I want to do more one person shows I want to do big cast things I think it's sort of more it's more about just wanting to um, wanting to work collaboratively as much as possible. I think that's really a big part of the way that I like to write. The last sort of big play that I wrote was with the National Youth Theater that we wrote through workshop with young people. Um, I think it's wanting especially following on from this year of just kind of breaking breaking a little bit that image of the the lonely writer sitting in their,
0: mm-hmm. in their
1: garret kind of sending missives out to the world. I kind of, I don't think that's how I see my relationship between art and the world going forward. I think it's working kind of collaboratively with other artists and non-artists to, uh, to take the work to, to different places than it would be if it was just from my own Head. I'm sort of less interested in the, like writer as God. Um, I'm kind of more interested in just sort of being a part of a of a bigger machine. I think that I think is why theatre is so attractive to me.
0: Does uh, does directing come into that? I know you've you've done some directing as well.
1: Less less so. Um, I just I just don't think I'm am as good at it. <laughs> I think I think you have to know that you're a real visionary, and I think that I sort of you kind of know your limits and know where where it's better to put your efforts and i think that it's just become really clear to me that it's in writing um i think that i want to to tell my own stories and to tell stories and to know know in what direction that's going the things that i love about directing are that communal aspect and working with actors and um and working as part of a team i really love all of that Um, but not so much but i realize i can have that and (laughs) write, so why not do that (laughs)
0: have you um, have you uh, thought about uh, adaptations uh, i know that a lot of writers uh, <laughs> make make money make make a living doing that as well as creating new work is that yeah? my
1: next two projects are adaptations mm-hmm. i'm currently adapting george orwell's animal farm
0: <laughs> we okay. just did a tour of that a- oh
1: fantastic
0: yeah, just yeah well, the, the rights
1: have just become so i think we'll see a few productions of that and also it just feels it couldn't feel more I guess couldn't feel more timely,
0: unfortunately. <laughs> I agree, I agree very much. Oh, cool, what else? What, what, can you talk about the other one yet?
1: Um, I'm not sure. It's an adaptation of a, of a, of a children's novel by a really beloved um, children's author here uh, that is a, a sort of a small cast uh, touring piece that will hopefully tour around community spaces and schools. It nice. should um, be really lovely.
0: Okay. Well, it sounds like you have lots of things coming up, and, and yeah, I feel uh, very
1: fortunate. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, it's uh, well deserved. Uh, uh, we uh, we're uh, very much uh, a fan uh, on this side of the pond, as they say, and uh, uh-huh. we're looking forward to to working on your piece um, and um, and hope to do it justice. Um, so, thank you, Teddy. Uh-huh. Um, we appreciate it. Um, uh, do you have anything you'd like to say uh, before before we sign off on the podcast? Any other comments?
1: Oh, just that it's really thrilling to know that this work has resonated so far away from where I wrote it. Like It, it just feels really joyful and so yeah. lovely that for a play that's about kind of going from isolation to connection and community, that that's exactly the journey that the play has taken. So I'm just really thrilled to, to hear this production happening and I wish you
0: all the best. Thank you very much and thank you for joining us today.